Hello, and welcome to Stride and Saunter, episode 65. I'm Kip Clark. And I'm Caroline Borders. And today we're going to be talking about the recent abolition of China's one-child policy. We've attached several articles that you can look at, and to be clear, this was decided recently by the Communist Party in China, but it may not be ratified until March of next year, 2016, when another committee, so to speak, will decide upon this ruling. And so perhaps the one-child policy may continue perhaps not. But Caroline, where would you like to start this conversation? I think it would be really informative for both you and I who are American and sort of ill-informed, or at least I feel ill-informed about the one-child policy in China and just general population in the world in general, if we got into it talking about our very rapidly growing world and the consequences of that. And I think the one-child policy really is a major consequence of it. Right. So there are, of course, thinkers like Malthus back in the day who theorized that a population could only be supported by its limit of resources, by space and food, any source of sustenance, things that help keep living organisms or entities alive. And many people disagreed with this thinking, saying that people were more adaptive than Malthus gave them credit for, and that we could make more out of our environments than he initially predicted. And I would largely agree with that to the extent that we have skyscrapers, for example. We can keep building vertically and add more living space for people in a lot of our cities and urban areas in the U.S. and elsewhere in the world. However, I do think there's a limit to that in that maybe we can continue to make buildings in which people can live and work, but aesthetically, I think our world becomes less beautiful and you can't necessarily recreate natural beauty because it is natural. It can't be man-made by its very nature of being nature, to use the word again. And I think socially, there are always repercussions of crowding. People feel less significant when they see there are 20 others like them or 50 others or 100 others like them. Similarly, you may be excited to have more neighbors, but at the same time, more tenants in an apartment building might increase the likelihood of of a fire or an accident or the spread of diseases. Well, it's interesting that you're talking about vertical construction and growth, because when I think about crowding, I think of informal settlements. And I think of people who wouldn't be able to afford these apartment buildings, maybe you're thinking in the US, but how crowding can occur by just simply making one space divisible into many other tiny, tiny parts where people are living together, but certainly not in a comfortable way. And of course, not only is population growth an issue, but it often ties into economic ability. And many people who are, let's say, a single family but very wealthy can financially acquire large spaces, acreage, in which others might be trespassing and therefore bordered off spaces that aren't full of people. It's not a problem of crowding. It's a problem of ownership of that space. And there's another conversation to be had about human beings owning space. Absolutely. But I do think overpopulation is something that should be considered in that human beings continue to adapt, in my opinion, to the number of mouths that need to be fed. I think GMOs are a product of overpopulation in many ways in that we need food to be grown more efficiently and more quickly and to feed more mouths to contain more 
of the nutrients that we need to give other people. And of course, there are more participants every day in things like the internet and in global political forums, and the world becomes an increasingly complex system because we have more vocal citizens. With more citizens, education needs to be expanded. There's just so many aspects to population growth that really, it does boggle the mind. And I think overcrowding, like you said, with 20 people who look the same and act the same, and therefore you feel less significant. And I think that does render people with little voice in a lot of areas. Some people have much greater voice, and I think it renders a plentiful number of people without. With that in mind, it'd be pertinent to talk about how the one-child policy has been a reaction to all this in some ways and hasn't really considered individuals in the process. I agree. I think that's a very logical path to go down. For me, thinking about the one-child policy at all is very intriguing because it is a government top-down saying to the people who are a larger mass than the government itself, this is how things need to be. These are the steps we need to take in order to protect our nation, to protect our world, to think of the future. And governments are interesting entities in that we allow them as citizens to determine a lot of things. And in democracies, we don't so much allow as vote on and hope that they, in response, will return with certain policies that all find favorable or that we can all compromise on. But to allow a government to have such a prominent role in one's family life and arguably sexual life and reproductive life and intimate, personal, and partnered life is really interesting to me in that if I'm with my partner in the future and married and we want to have children, I don't know that I can envision or relate to a system in which I'm told I can only have one child. And to make it personal, and this is what I did when reading these articles, I happen to have an older brother. I can't think of a situation in which my mother, who I know wanted to have children, was limited to one child. I think it'd be very uncomfortable and strange. And also, if we're being blunt about it, goes against the biological urges of some people who, because we are a species, want to reproduce. It's very strange to think about fighting that urge with legislature. Also, not even the idea of being limited, but the idea that you will have to get rid of a child if you happen to have one by mistake or by accident. For example, if we're talking personally, I have a twin brother. And it was discussed in these articles, the male dominance that has resulted from the one-child policy. I would have been killed as a girl and my brother a boy because that's what's valorized in that society. I mean, I take that personally. That's strange. If I had been born Chinese in the last 30 years or so, that I would not have survived. Right. And you use the word valorized. I think a lot of that comes from the economic value of a male seen as, I don't know, stronger, perhaps, or more capable of certain tasks, which I would disagree with. But I'm also not a Chinese citizen, and they aren't asking my opinion. But also just the history in China has always privileged men. Right. And of course... I mean, in the world in exactly, general. Exactly. The world we live in, unfortunately. But yeah, infanticide and abortions were rampant throughout this period. And a lot of the articles talk about how fertility rates were dropping in China as was. And so the one-child policy didn't necessarily add to that, but was still instituted nonetheless. And of course, as a result, many people chose sterilization of some format, vasectomies or hysterectomies, so as to not conceive children and Many of them, after hearing about this policy's potential abolition, immediately sought ways to reverse that. 
many people, especially in wealthy communities, as the consumer group Alibaba showed, sought books and information about reproductive health and how to conceive a child because they were so eager to potentially have another child. It does seem as though the reversal of this policy might allow for two children, which is still not reproductive freedom because it's still a limit, but it does change things. And also on a psychological level and something I'm sure we should revisit, being an only child does tend to affect your psychology, at least here in America, where parents are able to devote not only resources, but time and social attention to you as their only child. And I think that affects the way you perceive your individuality, your value. And it's also related, as you just mentioned, to gender. And the fact that there is a strange proportion of males to females in China, and I think that has to affect the way you perceive society. And we are lucky in America, to my knowledge, to have a relatively even balance of men and women. And I'm curious to hear what you think about potential effects on masculinity, especially as a woman. I'd really love to know what you think that might have done, even hypothetically, to the Chinese male. I think also... Definitely considering the Chinese male, but also the Chinese female. If from the beginning you see empirically there are more men than women and you're also told that women are inferior through action, through media, then I think it becomes evident in how society is manifested. And I think it's sad because China is so very isolated in many ways. I think it gives a really false representation of the world and the capabilities of women, especially if there are so many, so many stories of female children getting aborted because they found out they were female and that family wanted a male child. Right. And also young girls, baby girls being left simply to die in a room somewhere being completely ignored. It's very tragic and uncomfortable. And I wonder, as women, if those who were allowed to survive feel in some way lucky to have been left alone and to have been allowed to survive or right. yeah. strangely alone, because of course the proportions aren't correct, as we might say they should be correct, if that's the right word to use. And I also think as a male, you would have a strange relationship with women in that are they socially valuable in some ways because they would be more rare than males or are they meant to be at lower numbers does the psychology of the state of china impact your thinking there i'm really curious to know what that impact would be and of course as we read in one article the family's relationship to children is essential and the anecdote about the 16 year old child who was killed leaving the parents with no social value whatsoever they were outcast by their community because they were seen as those who would hang on and in old age those who would sap the resources of others and it's also said that currently the ratio of support is five working citizens for every one elderly citizen needing retirement support of some sort which is vast right and it isn't sustainable which is why china intends to reverse the policy but the other curious thing to me to think about is the span of time in which this will be repaired it's an aim for the future this can't be immediately reversed because not only does our world operate that way but people take time to grow up and so we will see changes to this if the new policy is ratified over the next 18 years you and i will be in our early 40s when the real impacts are seen. 
Exactly. And I think what you were saying earlier about how men view women and women view men now in the National Geographic article that we read, which was also an interview coming from the reporter Mei Fong, she says that in these quote unquote bachelor villages, because of the drastic increase in the male population, these are called bachelor villages, there has been a resurrection of the bride price, which is so backwards to me. And it's so interesting to me that it seems resurrected as though it died out for a while. And once there weren't enough women to have equal marriage proportions, they had to create some sort of system where women would be put over others so that they could somehow marry off women in a way that some men obviously would end up not married. A number of the projections in various graphs that we looked at state that this would put China's population at a more even level, in fact, declining around 2030 or 2040, based on some projections with the U.S. rising, but probably not exceeding 1 billion people, China currently being at 1.3 billion. And I find it interesting to think about how many people we want in our world. Is there an ideal number? Of course, there are capitalists who would say, more people, more money. It's fantastic for all. We will have more jobs. We will also have more people purchasing. Or if you think about it in another way, more people, more labor, more money for some people. <laughs> right. And that's interesting to think about. And even personally, I think as someone who does enjoy people, is it worth it to bring more lives into the world? Because in some cases, as we've said earlier, it is getting crowded. Yet at the same time, we also come from a privileged place of being alive. And it's perhaps not fair of us to say, no more lives, we've already gotten in, now we are closing the doors. Because is it our right to say, is it the right of the Chinese who are currently alive to say that they won't allow more Chinese lives to enter the world? That, to me, is a curious thought. Absolutely. I think we also come from a place where living is wonderful. And for some people, it really isn't. And do we really want to put more people in the position where living is a struggle every single day? And is that fair too? Even though life is perceived to be this really important, monumental, glorious thing, but really for some people it's suffering. And I also think when we look at the Chinese family being mandated or in many ways encouraged to have second children, are there families that don't want second children, were satisfied having one child, or in some cases I presume there must be, no children, feeling obligated to have more children? Do they want to? And what are the implications of having a child that you've essentially been politically mandated to have in your family? Would you really want to raise someone and get close to someone, get to know someone that you did not initially want to conceive and raise? I really wish we had someone living there experiencing this to talk to right now. In my opinion, I think it would be really isolating and that couple who didn't want children would likely be ostracized for not valuing that social aspect of bearing children. But I don't know. I'm not Chinese. I also think about population control as a concept. And I'm sure there are cynics out there who would say that wars are a form of population control, which in a very somber way is true. It's but true. you can also prevent life from happening as the Chinese have tried to instill as a value and as a practice. And besides abortion and sterilization, is it mentally possible to restrain yourself from having children? Of course, there are people who simply don't want to. And I respect that. In fact, many friends here at Kenyon, I know female friends of mine don't want to have children. And I respect that. 
But I think in the world, you can't count on that as a variable. Even in the United States, you can't predict whether people will or won't. And I wonder, as the world gets more crowded, will the system naturally figure itself out in which crowding happens? And so people say, you know what, I would have loved to have kids, but it's just too crowded right now. Maybe I shouldn't. And will things gradually even out? Or will we experience disastrous events like famines or droughts, large natural disasters that force us to limit our populations because we can't sustain them? I'm really curious to see how countries outside of China that are of similar development will talk about population in the future. Because as a country, the U.S. has really not talked about it at all, as far as I can tell. And I haven't heard of any government policies in our country looking at that. And I wonder if that's simply because we are a democracy. And I think we should, as human beings, forget U.S., forget China. As a globe, think about human population, because it is very high and has exploded in the last century in which you and I were born. And I would really encourage people, especially our policymakers, if you're listening, to think about population growth, not just in terms of economics. I think that that was really one of the faults of the Chinese in making this policy, not considering social relationships, community, gender roles, and how that really has damaged social relations and the individuals that have been impacted by the one-child policy in China and generally in the world. I think anyone who's making policies about population growth really needs to consider local communities and how it will affect the status quo. And perhaps the status quo isn't good, but it definitely would be a rupture in people's ways of lives. I agree. And I think in many ways, reparations to the one-child policy will create further ruptures as couples and the country of China, if in fact they ratify, try to negotiate the new balance of having two, or if it is the case, more than two children. Because as a country, more children will be born. I think there will be a strange, as I've said earlier, mandated boom in population, where in the US, the baby boomers were a generation that happened after World War II. But in this case, population would grow because of an internal policies reversal. And I think that's interesting. So, Kim, I'm going to read a quote that I found interesting in this article, and I think you might find it interesting as well. Statistics that compare different countries as well as empirical analysis of data from hundreds of districts within India indicate sharply that two most potent factors that induce fertility reduction globally are women's schooling and women's paid employment. And I know for sure that you can speak to this. Certainly. I think that quotation is key because from a male perspective, I imagine that women who have been traditionally limited to roles such as housewives and caretakers and mothers and wives will find greater opportunity and greater fulfillment in life through education and more open career paths. And so I can absolutely understand or envision a world in which more education for young women, for girls, allows them to pursue paths that may not require marriage, that may not require relationships, which would typically lead to children. And I think better understanding of, let's say, fertility, specific knowledge of the human body might allow individuals to better understand what it is that birth entails and what it is economically that 
raising a child would entail if more women attend college courses or any courses that teach them about how to financially operate in the world. And perhaps they would say, I'd rather not raise a child then because I would rather use these resources for X or Y. And so I think it makes sense that education and more open opportunities can account for a decrease in fertility. And honestly, I wish China had considered information like that and might in the future. And I hope other countries do as well, because that might be the solution to population growth that won't require abortions, that won't require mass sterilization of any form, because I think we would all agree that's cruel in many ways. It's disturbing and it might be scientifically efficient, but it is socially and emotionally very cold, in my opinion. But also the idea that to have schooling, to have all these opportunities is coming from a place of privilege and that for many people in the world, economic security is found through children. Value and wealth is found through children, not even physically, but wealth in terms of status is placed upon children. And I think China may struggle in terms of education of women in upcoming years because with fewer women in China, you could predict that proportionally a percentage of them might want to go into education. But if we don't have very many female teachers in China, perhaps there will be a male perspective taught in schools. And I find that problematic, although, of course, you can't mandate or order anyone to want to be a teacher. If China hypothetically had 90% male teachers, the perspective of the world would be different. And I think that wouldn't lead to a better understanding of what it means to be a woman in China or the values that Chinese women would like to pursue. I think in general, you're putting your finger on the exact thing, which is the complexity of the whole situation, which really there's no one good solution. And there have been really unfortunate effects of the one child policy. But hopefully in the future, now that they've begun the steps to take it away or to remove it, hopefully we can see some changes in terms of the evaluation of population growth in the future. I think that we will. And as we close the episode, I would like our audience to think about their specific family arrangements and how many siblings they may or may not have and how that's affected growth in themselves, growth of their family, and even on a community level, what that may have done. Because I know you and I understand what it's like to have a sibling, but not everyone does. And especially to international listeners, we would be curious to know what your family arrangements are like and how your family units function. And I'd be really curious to hear what people have to say about that. I think it's also really important to consider the privilege that one has in being able to choose one's family size or have a sibling or just the idea that abortion is a choice rather than in many countries. Personally, for me, I'm pro-choice, so I think it should be a choice. But in China, for many, many decades, it was forced upon many women. And I think that's really important to keep in mind when thinking about this issue. I agree. And of course, as we've both said and hopefully indicated in our conversation, this is an incredibly complex issue, one that we have probably just scratched the surface of and we will gladly revisit if listeners would like. And frankly, I think we will revisit come March when the decision may or may not be ratified. But as always, we'd love for this to be a conversation among, not simply a conversation between. So please feel free to reach out to us with comments, criticisms, any opinions or thoughts you may have. 
You can reach us on Twitter or Facebook. Our email is stridensaunter at gmail.com. And if you enjoy this episode, we would love it if you left us a review and subscribe. It helps the show grow and helps other individuals discover the show. And also consider recommending it to a friend if you know someone who might enjoy this conversation or derive any value from it. And if you leave us a review on iTunes and email us the text of that review, you will be entered to win a $20 Amazon gift card, which we would, of course, love to give out. And as always, we thank you very much for listening. And from thought to word and voice to ear, this is Kip Clark signing off. And this is Caroline Borders. We'll see you next time.